Thank you for listening to the Redeemer podcast. Redeemer exists to make the gospel of Jesus known in our city, region, and world. Subscribe to the Redeemer podcast to not only access our weekly sermons, but also select special talks and lectures by myself and our guest speakers. If you want to know more about Redeemer and how you can be a part of what God is doing through our church, go to www.redeemerbible.ca. Thank you, and we hope that you're blessed by what you're about to hear. Ezekiel, uh, for, for Advent, which sounds strange, but um, the book of Ezekiel is loaded with references to glory, 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 over and over. And that's why we're doing this. And so I'm going to read Ezekiel 43. I'm just going to read verses 1 to 7, though they'll probably have up to 1 to 12 up on the screen, but we'll just stop at 7. So let me read that now. Then he led me to the gate, the gate facing east. And behold, the glory of God of Israel was coming from the east. And the sound of his coming was like the sound of many waters. And the earth shone with his glory. And the vision I saw was just like the vision that I had seen when he came to destroy the city. And just like the vision that I had seen by the Kabar Canal. And I fell on my face. As the glory of the Lord entered the temple by the gate facing east, the Spirit Spirit lifted me up and brought me into the inner court. And behold, the glory of the Lord filled the temple. While the man was standing beside me, I heard one speaking to me out of the temple. And he said to me, Son of man, this is the place of my throne and the place of the soles of my feet, where I will dwell in the midst of my people, Israel, forever. Okay, so what's happening here? Ezekiel, 25 years into exile. If you don't know, Israel has, um, has left God. They've committed what we call spiritual adultery. They have trusted other things for their life, be it money, be it neighbors to protect them. They have chased after other gods. And as a result, they have driven God out of the land. And this is what Ezekiel records in chapters 8 to 11 of his book. He sees the glory of God leaving Israel, abandoning the, the temple and Jerusalem. And that's 25 years earlier this happens, this, this exile occurs. And 19 years after Ezekiel gets his first vision, he gets this one. And this one is a strange one to him because he's now being shepherded around by a man who looks like bronze. He never describes who it is. He never says who it is. But a man who looks bronze is giving him a tour of this temple. And he's measuring things as he goes and he's telling Ezekiel all about the temple. And it reminds us of, if you know the Bible, in the book of Exodus, when God is trying to describe, uh, not trying, he's succeeding, in describing what the tabernacle should look like, what their, their little roving, portable temple should look like. But it differs in one or two very important ways. And this is where the, the deep Christian types will have problems with me. Here's where it differs. Ezekiel does not tell them to rebuild the temple. There's nothing in the book of Ezekiel where God says, hey, see this temple, Ezekiel? Tell Israel to rebuild this temple here on earth. He never does it. In, in Exodus, he does it very clearly. He says, do this exactly as I say. Raise money for it. Do what you have to do and follow this to a T. But in Ezekiel, from chapters 40 to 48, when he's walking through this big earth, heavenly temple or whatever it is, this vision, never once does God say, build it. So what is he doing? And in fact, listen, we know he's not doing it. He tells us not to. And then, of course, when, when Christ returns in Revelation, there's no temple in the new earth. So we can't be speaking of a future temple that will be built because he doesn't tell us to build it and there's no temple in the new earth because God is their temple. And so what's happening here? 
What's going on? Well, what he's doing is he's creating and he's setting a vision for them about what God is going to do. And the temple, of course, is the place where God dwelled with his people. And what God is saying to Ezekiel is, I'm coming back. Yes, I've abandoned them because they deserved it, but I'm coming back and I will be with them. I will be with them like it was. I'm going to make the world a temple. I'm going to create a world where we can finally be together. And so this is what he is getting at here. And the word glory, 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 not only is ringing out through the book of Ezekiel, because this is what he sees. Ezekiel, in this vision, after three chapters, is brought to the eastern temple, or gate, and that gate faces east. And that's the gate through which God had left in chapter 8 to 11. And now Ezekiel shows up in chapter 43, and he sees God coming back. And he sees specifically the glory of God coming back. And glory, what does the word glory even mean? It's all over our Christmas songs. How many times did you sing it today? But what is glory? What is the glory of God? How do we understand it? And the word dominates everywhere in Scripture, not just in Ezekiel, in Luke 2, which we've read here and it goes on. The glory of the Lord shines on the shepherds. Then, when the angel starts singing or speaking, they technically don't sing, when they start saying, declaring what they're declaring to the shepherds, they say, glory to God in the highest. And then after the shepherds go and see the baby in the manger, they go away glorifying. So what is glory? How is, what is, what's happening in this story about God returning and what's happening at Christmas? And we're going to try to understand what the word glory means. That's all we're going to do, and I'm going to try to do it as quickly as Carl can. And the simplest way is, I hate to do this on Christmas Eve, but we're going to bring grammar into it. We're going to see that glory is described in the Bible as a noun, an adjective, and a verb. Don't worry, it's not as boring as it sounds. It's going to be awesome, I hope. So, first, it's called a noun. Glory is called a noun. What is a noun? Person, place, thing. It's a name. And the Bible speaks over and over as if God is glorious. Not just that he's, it's something he does. No, no, it is who he is. In fact, right here in Ezekiel, the second verse, he says, And behold, the glory of the God of Israel was coming. Now, the glory of the God of Israel, meaning God possesses glory. It's the glory of God. He owns it. It's, it's part of him. It's part of his very nature. It's his character. He is glory. Okay, That doesn't really help you yet, but we're going to get there. But he's the possessor of glory. Now, what does it mean? Well, there's a Hebrew word for glory. That means it's the Hebrew word kabod. And what it means literally is weight. It's the fullness. It's the heaviness of God. Literally, all the stuff that makes God God is so significant, it's so complete, it's so full, it's so perfect, that it is God. God is full. In fact, often in the Bible, God, it's funny, right? In the world, we think of God as being airy-fairy. He's spirit. And we are substantial. We have things, right? And yet the Bible speaks exactly the opposite. It says God is full. God is substantial. You're the frothy one. You're the Starbucks latte with extra foam, right? And God is weighty. So much so that when God comes to earth, there's always, always earthquakes. It's like if you're standing on a river that's frozen and someone drops a boulder on it, everything shakes. God cannot come to the world without it shaking because his glory is full, heavy, weighty. Now, when it speaks this way, Jonathan Edwards, this uh, wonderful old theologian, says, the glory of God is the weight of all that is God, the fullness of his understanding, virtue, and joy. A more modern theologian, Christopher Morgan, says, God's glory is the magnificence, worth, loveliness, and grandeur of his many perfections. Now, 
Have you noticed this? If you've ever met um, someone who is significant to you, uh, like a, it could be a celebrity, it could just be someone who means a lot to you, and if you ever meet them, and I've had the privilege of meeting people that I uh, really valued. One of them was a guy named Tim Keller, who I adore Tim Keller, passed away this year, and when I met him, he's first he's tall, and one of the things you notice when you meet him is, at least I did, is they, they carry, uh, it's like awe-inspiring, right? Certain people in our lives that we look up to that they seem to have a radiance about them. They seem to have, there's something there, there's a bearing about them. Now, that's all fine and good, but what I understood and what we should understand is people like that, your glory, <laughs> our glory, is given to us. It is ascribed to us, right? Somebody, Tim Keller isn't glorious. He's just the guy who had an impact on me. Therefore, I have ascribed to him glory to an extent. When the Bible speaks about God, it doesn't speak that way. It says that God is glorious, meaning this. You, by worshiping him, do nothing to add to his grandeur and his glory. You can glorify him, and we're going to see that. That's the verb, and we should. But when we glorify God, we don't make him any more glorious. And then, if, you reserve, if you're here and you're just dragged here by your family on Christmas Eve, and you think this is all hokey, ridiculous Christianity, then you may, you may be under the impression that by withholding your worship, you are robbing God of something. You're not. Because God is not one of these ancient other gods, in the, in, in, well, any other god, that needs your worship to, be, to, to have power. The God of the Bible is glorious. He has it all. He doesn't require, he neither, as Macbeth would say, he neither begs nor fears your favor nor your hate. He doesn't need it. And so he's glorious, self-contained. It's inherent in him. And so glorious, so weighty is God that every time he shows up, in the book of Ezekiel especially, but everywhere, the people buckle under the weight of him. He shows up to Ezekiel, and Ezekiel falls down every time. And the reason is God is too weighty. In fact, the glory of God is too weighty. And getting back to the celebrities, and I'll speak about celebrity pastors, have you noticed how celebrities don't do well with glory? Have you noticed how celebrity pastors especially continually fall and fall and fall? And is it because they're horrible people? Well, yeah, I'm a good Calvinist. Of course he's horrible. We're all horrible. Like I've said, we're all on the naughty list, right? So what is the reason? The reason is this. You and I simply are not strong enough to bear the weight of glory. We're not. And even if it's human glory, when I seek followers and likes and power and fame in this world, too much of it, what does it do? My knees buckle under it. So you see celebrity pastors slipping and falling, and then anybody. Anytime we can, too much glory is heaped on us, when we seek glory for ourselves, we find we cannot bear the weight of it. God alone can bear the weight of glory. In fact, it's so incredible. God's glory is described as being so incredible that even in Exodus, when Moses sees what is in the Hebrew, it says literally the hind parts, the backside of God, because he can't see the front. He says, Moses, you can't see all of my glory because you die. You can't see it. It's too heavy for you. So even when he sees the back parts, the hind parts of God, Moses is so altered that he has to cover himself because the world can't abide it. So he's that glorious. It's inherent. It's in him. So glory is, noun-wise, the full weight of all that God is. Okay, we're not clear yet, but that's the first part. Part two now, we turn it into an adjective because we have to now fill in the gaps. To try to understand what nouns, are, what, what glory is, you then start using other words to describe it. He is merciful. It's usually, 
the attributes of God. He's merciful, he's good, he's kind, he's wrathful, he's just. Now, this picture up here is, is actually wrong. I'll explain why. When you, you can put the X across first. Let's go back. <laughs> when you and I think of God, here's, a, here's your theology lesson for the day. Christians especially, we do this. We're under the impression that God is not so much all of anything, as much as he is a, a, a compound God. He's made up of different parts, like he's wearing different hats. So when God is angry, he takes off his good hat and he puts on his angry hat. Or when he's feeling really compassionate, he takes off his, his, his wrath hat or his justice hat and he puts on his compassion hat and then he's your grandfather in heaven. He's really kind to you, gives you candy, and off you go. The problem with that view is this. The assumption is that when God puts on his justice hat and he's, he's stern and he's judge, he is no longer loving because he took that hat off, right? And that is wrong. And if you want to get really deep, come to the Tuesday studies and we'll talk about what's called the divine simplicity of God. God is not a compound made up of all these different parts. He doesn't have different hats he puts on. To understand the glory of God, you need to understand that he is entirely holy. Now we can go to the next one. Not the next one, after that. So he is all holy. He is entirely, next one, keep going, just. He's entirely merciful. He is entirely just merciful? Is that the last one? That's the last one. I don't remember what I did here. Now, what we mean by that is this. When God is just and he is, he is punishing someone, he doesn't cease to be loving. God is always just and he is always loving. Therefore, God's justice is always a justice of love, never in anger and in punishment alone. It's never simply retribution. There's a time for that. That's what hell is for. Eventually, God will have to, the bill will come at the end of the meal. But generally speaking, God is generally saying, no, even when he is hard on people, even when they suffer, understand, especially if you're a Christian, he does it for the good of those. Can you understand it? No. Always no. But this is the great promise that God is going to take the tattered strands of your life and of the world, and he's weaving something beautiful from it. So God's justice is never devoid from his love. Understand? One, always the same. Now, with that being said, here's what we do know. To try to understand, now, what does it mean that God is glorious? What are, what are these different things, mercy? Um, we then look at what he's done. We describe God based on what he has done in the world. This is how we know who God is. He reveals himself in the world. And if God is glorious, if he is glory, then all he does is glorious. And then, to describe that glory, you need to see what he does, because glory is what God does. And when we look, I can't do everything, but today, just as part in Ezekiel, what we see is God is coming. Let's look at this one idea. But it's not a verb yet. We'll just leave it on adjective. <laughs> so, God is coming. Israel has abandoned God. They have no interest in God. It's very Canada-like. They have no interest in God. And as a result, God has said, I'm abandoning, I'm leaving. But he leaves Jerusalem to fall but he goes with his people into exile into Babylon. And then when, God, when Ezekiel sees him coming back, you have to, I don't, it's difficult, we can't quite grasp it. This is something incredible. Because there's something that Ezekiel does that no other prophet does, that no one else in Scripture does, but only Ezekiel. And if you don't read it carefully, you don't, don't see it, but every scholar sees it. What he's doing is he reverses the order of forgiveness and repentance. So uh, I didn't read it here. But this is part, as we go on, is repeatedly in the book of, of um, Ezekiel, 
God says, I'm going to come and I'm going to rescue Israel. I'm going to live with them again. Things are going to be good. And then they're going to feel ashamed. And you think, well, why does God want them to feel shame? Well, the fact is God does want them to feel shame. But why? What is, what, what's going on there? See, what God is saying is this incredible thing. Normally what happens is this. You and I have done something wrong. We then realize the shame or the weight, the guilt of what we have done. So we then repent, we confess, etc. And then there is healing that comes after. But in Ezekiel, that's not the case. God says, I'm going to come first and I'm going to rescue them. And I'm going to love them and I'm going to care for them. I'm going to make all things better. Then they're going to feel shame. Now, is God mean? No, he's not being mean. Here's one of the things that's very hard to grasp about the Bible. God says he will, forgive your, will forget your sin. He will forget you sinned, but you can't forget it. And that seems like, oh my goodness, are we meant to be always wallowing in guilt? No, because if you know Christ has forgiven it, your guilt then acts not to condemn you, but the guilt acts as a reminder that you got something you didn't deserve at Christmas, that you received something that while you were still a sinner, God died for you. So God here to Ezekiel is revealing himself as merciful, giving you something you don't deserve. And this is why it's incredible. You see, because think about this. Why else would you call God glorious? If you're a criminal and you have been sentenced to 25 years in prison for something, and then you have paid the 25 years, and as your 25th year and one day you come out of the prison, what you wouldn't do is say, that judge was glorious. He was merciful to me. And the reason you wouldn't say that is because you paid the price. You'd say, no, no, he's not, he doesn't deserve anything. I had a debt. I paid it. I deserve the glory. Here's the challenge of Christianity. You cannot pay your debt. And Ezekiel is telling you that at Christmas, he came and said, you can't pay your debt, so he's going to pay it for you. And that's why we call him glorious. We don't call him glorious because he's a tyrant. We call him glorious because he's merciful. Well, many things. But in this case, because he's merciful. God will rescue us before we repent. Believe that? Can you believe that? We'll have, unpack that as you go. But you have to wrestle with what God is saying here. That doesn't mean you never repent. If anything, what we do is we fall on our face when you hear what God has done and you repent. Because he's awesome. Now, Christmas then is the beginning. So what happens at Christmas? It's this. When, when, the, when, when people see, when the shepherds see what's happening in, in the manger, you know why they worship? It's because they realize what's happening is the fulfillment of what Ezekiel was talking about. Ezekiel said God was going to come and make things better. And oh my goodness, this is it. This is the start of it. And so it's the beginning of it. Because God comes and he accepts what we call humiliation. And you think, is it humiliation? Well, yeah, it is. If a God is perfect and holy and good, he, anytime he has to come and deal with people who are not perfect, it's hard on it. It's difficult. It's a, it's a humiliation. He shouldn't have to deal with it. He shouldn't have to die. He shouldn't have to suffer at the hands of his creatures. But he does. And he does it for you. And for that reason, knowing you didn't deserve it, we glorify him. And this leads to the last point of it being a verb. Because when you see Christmas is what it is, rather than what the Christmas movies tell you, you then turn glory from a noun and an adjective into a verb, and you start to glorify. And this fills in the picture of glory more. When you see what God is, everything changes. Because here in Ezekiel, God says, when they see it, when they finally see I have saved them, I have made a place where I can be with them, and their sin will be forgiven, then they will worship me. Then they'll worship me. Because then they won't be worshiping only to gain forgiveness. Because listen, if, if, 
If it was the other way around, if you could earn God's forgiveness by being a good person, don't you see, you would never want God, you just want what he could give you. You don't want God, you just want to avoid the flames. You just want to avoid things, you want to marry him for his money, that's what you are. And so God comes and says, no, I'm going to give you all the money first. Therefore, when you see that, those who understand who I am, those who he has opened the eyes to see, will then respond in obedience and worship and love him. That's what he is getting at. This is the response. This is why the shepherds returned, as it says in Luke 2.20, the shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen as it had been told to them. So they turn it from an adjective into, an, or into a verb. They start to do the glorifying. And this is the response that every human, human should have at Christmas. All of us. Charlie Brown should have it when Linus tells him. All of us. And we see, and I'm going to close with a bunch of quotes from other people and the Bible as well. We speak about glory. You don't need to be a Christian, but here's what you cannot deny. No person has ever impacted the world as Christ. None. In fact, he's impacted it so entirely that you actually don't even know he's impacted it. For instance, when you were out here as Christians, or as Canadians, and were crying for liberty, for people who think differently, who have different gender ideas, whatever it might be. Do you understand that when you're crying for equality, you're crying for a Christian value that didn't exist prior to Christ's coming? Because the answer was very simple to what to do with people who thought that they were a gender they weren't in the ancient world. Kill them and abandon them. Christ comes and says, no, no, they might be wrong, but we don't kill them. If you have a child that isn't the gender you want, you don't just abandon them on heaps of dung like the Romans and the Greeks do. Who are the first ones who opened orphanages? Christians, who said, we'll take them. I wish we'd do the same thing with people who want to abort children. Maybe that would help. Christians, Christianity changed. When, when you reason, even from science, listen, I have many degrees. Science is not a, a conflict with Christianity. Science only makes sense if the world is ordered. And the world is, only has order if there is an orderer. Only way. Unless you think a hurricane can hit a junkyard and create a 747. I saw something this week. You know what? I wish it could happen because my wife is not feeling well, so I've been doing the housework. I wish that the law of random chance kicked in and, and the uh, dryer would just fold the laundry for me. Because <laughs> this, this is what it is. But that's not the way the world is. The reason Newton and Kepler and all these men and women as well started thinking science had order to it is because they believed there was order in the world. And the reason they thought there was order is because they thought there was an orderer. You assume order. And that's because there is a God. H.G. Wells, who is no Christian, said that no one could look at history without seeing the impact of Christ everywhere. H.G. Wells was an atheist. No interest in God. Uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson, the name of Jesus is not written into history so much as it's plowed into history. Then um, Yaroslav Pelikan, a Yale historian, Jesus' vision of life continues to haunt and challenge humanity. His influence has swept over history like the tail of a comet bringing his inspiration to influence art, science, government, medicine, and education. If it were possible, with some sort of super magnet to pull up out of, his, out of the history, every scrap of metal bearing at least a trace of his name, how much would be left? We live in a world where Jesus' impact is immense, even if his name goes unmentioned. In some ways, our biggest challenge in gauging his influence is that we take for granted the ways in which our world has been shaped by him. And there's this wonderful quote, I'm gonna, well, I won't close with, I'll close with the scripture, Bible, but uh, quite a long quote. It's attributed to Napoleon. Napoleon apparently was in dialogue with Bertrand, one of his generals, and the general came to Napoleon and said, 
Um, Napoleon, how could you, as a wise man, thoughtful man, how could you possibly believe in the stupidity of Christianity? How could you believe in God? It makes no sense. Because remember, Napoleon comes, he's doing his, his, his greatest work, if you want to call it that, in the early 19th century. So this is long after the Enlightenment has come and people have stopped, started to abandon the idea of a God. And Napoleon's response, and this is in a, a biography um, of this general, so there's people who will debate whether Napoleon said it, but here's what we have attributed to him. I will tell you, Alexander, Caesar, Charlemagne, and myself have founded great empires, but our empires were founded on force. Jesus alone founded his empire on love, and to this day, millions would die for him. I think I understand something of human nature, and I tell you, all these were men, and I am a man. Jesus Christ was more than man. I have inspired multitudes with a devotion so enthusiastic that they would have died for me. But to do this, it was necessary that I should be visibly present, here's some boasting, with my electric influence, the electric influence of my looks, my words, my voice. Who cares for me now, removed as I am from the active scenes of life and from the presence of men? Who would now die for me? Christ alone, across the chasm of 18 centuries, makes a demand which is beyond all others difficult to satisfy. He asks more than a father can demand of his child, or a bride of her spouse, or a man of his brother. He asks for the human heart. He will have it entirely to himself. He demands it unconditionally, and forthwith his demand is granted. Wonderful. In defiance of time and space, the soul of man, with, its, with all its powers and faculties, becomes an annexation of the empire of Christ. This phenomenon is unaccountable. It is altogether beyond the scope of man's creative powers. Time, the great destroyer, is powerless to extinguish this sacred flame. This is what strikes me most. This is what proves to me quite convincingly that Jesus Christ is God. If you do not perceive that Jesus Christ is God, very well then I did wrong to make you a general. So, you don't need to... Listen, these are just people. But one of the things you cannot deny is you have to either come to... God, the Bible doesn't give you the option of walking away from here thinking, oh, nice talk, Pastor. That's not the option. You either, he either is God and you worship and glorify him, or he is not God and you go on about your life as if you were God. Those are the two options. There's no middle ground. Everyone makes a decision on Christ. The question I have to ask, and we ask regularly here, is do you believe that this is the king of glory? He is the king of glory. We have testimony. And people say, well, I need to see proof of it. What proof would, what proof would satisfy you? What proof? The proof is here. The proof is standing here. The proof is the, is the history he has made. The proof is in this great hope that we have as Christians. The reason we rejoice. If you're a Christian, rejoice because in Second Corinthians, Paul says this wonderful thing. All of us, with unveiled faces, seeing the glory of the Lord as though reflected in a mirror, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, the Spirit. That means that God is not when you, why would he allow you to suffer? We think, why would a father let his child suffer? Because I don't. If my kid is about to fall, my instinct is to not let them suffer. Because I actually lack love for my son. If I knew at times that that suffering would make him something imperishable, would I let him suffer? I would hope I would, but I have proven over and over again I wouldn't. But God says, no, I am using all these things. And in the midst of it, I am making you wonderful. I've used this example before when Maya was five years old, my little daughter. She was, um, I came into the kitchen and she was beating up a piece of Play-Doh, just beating it to death. 
And I said, boy, what are you doing? And she said, I'm making a horse. And I'm like, oof, doesn't look like a horse. And I said, but if that horse, don't you think you're hurting the horse? She's like, no. And I said, well, what would the horse say if he was alive? I mean, you're ripping apart his legs there. And um, she said, I would tell him to shut up because I'm making him something beautiful. I'm like, that's pretty good. The four-year-old or five-year-old Maya knows more than I know now. There are, I don't understand why we struggle. I don't. But I do know he is making you something wonderful. And that's the hope we have. So Christians, have a Merry Christmas. Worship this King of glory by radiating his glory into the world through your words and through your actions. If you're a skeptic, if you're non-Christian, well, have a Merry Christmas anyway. Do, please. We, hope I, we pray you have a wonderful Christmas. But I also pray that you would add a new tradition to Christmas, that it wouldn't just be about family and food and friends, things that will die, things that will leave you. You will get hungry again. But that rather that you add this tradition of glorifying this King who came and died for you. That's Christmas. Let's pray. Oh, Father, thank you, Lord. Thank you for Christmas, Lord. It shows your goodness. It shows your mercy that what we just talked about shows your glory, that it doesn't matter if you are a secular Jew, if you're atheist, if whatever you are, that at Christmas, people give more money. They spend more time with each other. There is a lightness and a radiance about Christmas that has come, and that's because you're so good that you cannot help but have rain fall on the just and the unjust. And we thank you for that. Thank you, Father, that you don't treat us the way we would treat ourselves and retreat others. Thank you that you are so merciful, so loving, so gracious, so good. Thank you that you came and while we were yet sinners, you died for us. Lord, you are holy. You are good. You are awesome. We thank you for sending your Son. We pray this in your Son's mighty, great, and awesome name. Amen.